Welcome to another episode of Film Streak. My name is Rob, and every episode here, I like to talk about some new movies that I've watched. And these aren't just new releases, although this episode is going to be a lot of newer releases, but uh, most of the time it's uh, stuff that I've maybe just been putting off, maybe just hadn't gotten around to. Uh, maybe it's some stuff that I didn't even know about that I'm really trying to um, maybe broaden my horizons a little bit and see a little more, kind of get out of my comfort zone of things that I just normally like to watch or things I just like to watch over and over and look for some new stuff. There's plenty of films out there in the world, right? And if you love films, you watch a lot of films, you, you start to see like you, you might kind of run in the same circles in terms of the types of stories or the genres that you like. And I found myself doing that a lot. So I said, I, I need to really, I need to really branch out some. So that's the idea with Film Streak. And I've been doing this now for a little while. And uh, thanks for checking this out. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear some other episodes about all the other films I've talked about so far, over 200 at this point, um, you can go to filmstreak.com and you can subscribe there. You can find other episodes. You can even sign up to get the episodes directly to your inbox. And there's even a list on IMDb that I'm keeping track of all of these films. You can go there and add them to your list or rate them or, or just find out where you can watch them. Um, it's just, it's just a handy little thing. It's going to be pretty important with this episode though, because, um, this episode, I want to talk about some newer movies that are running in the running for some Oscar nominations. And, I'm not going to get to all of them. There's so many different films that are nominated for different reasons and different categories. But here are the ones that uh, that I've really tried to hone in on and determine, like, these are something that's going to interest me, you know? And look, and also the other thing is, like, films that I can actually get to, I can actually watch. And so that's a little bit limited sometimes. You know, some films, they're um, in limited release. Uh, or there may be foreign films that aren't in, that aren't available anywhere here in the U.S. Or they're just some, because of timing, they're films that are in that window between theatrical and home video or streaming, right? So, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to find the, the films that I want to see in ways that I can see them. And so that's what we're going to talk about here. And I'll try and mention where I've seen these films and where they're available so that way you can check them out too, if you haven't already. And uh, let's get into it. Okay, first up on this episode, film streak number 210, All Quiet on the Western Front. Meister? Paul Bäumer? Ich Wieder mehr als 40.000 Tote allein in den letzten Wochen. Es ist vorbei. Im Namen der Menschlichkeit, ich bitte Sie um den Waffenstillstand. 
Vous avez 72 heures pour accepter nos conditions. Ich werde nicht kapitulieren. Meine Mutter wollte nicht, dass ich in Krieg ziehe. Ich wollte ihnen zeigen, dass ich das kann. Ach, Paul. Ja, meine Hose kommen. Schließen wir Frieden. Ich hab Angst vor dem, was kommt. Du musst jetzt tapfer sein. Für die, die es nicht geschafft haben. Für uns alle. All right, so this is a film directed by Edward Berger, and it's an adaptation of a novel, the classic novel from 1928, All Quiet on the Western Front. And my understanding is this film, this adaptation in particular, is the first time it's been adapted on film for the big screen in German. And... Uh, if you're not familiar with the with the novel or with any of the past iterations of the story on film or otherwise, um, essentially it's a story told from the perspective of German soldiers at the end of World War One, and we kind of get an idea from the beginning of the film when Paul and some of his young friends they decide to sign up for the war, and this is in 1917. They're excited, they're enthusiastic, they're kind of hungry to get into the fight, right? To to support the cause. And when we see them as young men and we see, one, we see that the, the war has been in progress. You know, the war started in 1914 and it's been going for several years. And we see that the world is not quite in a state of unrest at least in their particular situation, but we can see that there are things that are happening and uh, the fact that they are enlisting shows that there's still a fight to be had, or at least that's the, that's the thinking. You know, they're excited to join the fight. They're really anxious to get into it. And maybe it's more of an idealistic purpose that they, that they think they're getting involved with, but when they actually get to the front lines, they see the the horror of it. They see the brutality of it. And uh, when we do jump time into 1918, you know, we see that Paul and, and some of the other soldiers that are around him, they've kind of settled into a different mode. You know, it's not really a wartime posture. You know, they're almost kind of relaxed in a way. They're they're at this farm or this this farmhouse, and they're hungry and they're kind of uh they're kind of confused and restless and you know they they're not seeing any action and, and it just gives them a lot of time to think and to maybe reflect on what what they'll do when they go home and uh you know what the world might be like for them and yet it's not clear that that's ever actually going to happen you know we get the perspective also of uh different characters in the ranks that are working towards a ceasefire, towards some kind of armistice. And I mean, that really gives us a, at least 
an understanding of what else is going on outside of just Paul and, and his point of view. And so when we see some of the intense fighting they do have to jump back into, um, there is a particular sequence that is absolutely just um, horrifying. And if you're talking about you know, depictions of war and depictions of violence, um, there are certainly films in the past, especially in the past 20 years, that have really ratcheted up graphic, uh, just very brutal depictions of, of what war can be like. And here, this film does that and maybe a little more. I mean, it's intensely violent. And maybe even more so because the sense, at least from Paul's point of view, as, as we're following him as a protagonist, the sense is that we're on the losing side that this character is not going to make it out of this. And so there is a little bit of a, an impending kind of dread to what is going to happen to this character, what's going to happen in this story, because we know where it all ends. And yet, you know, I think there's, there's a certain, you know, look, the, the character here, Paul is played by Felix Kammerer, who. Uh, I've never seen any, anything in particular, but um, he at least embodies a certain kind of weariness and, a, and a, a soulfulness even as the movie goes on that, you, you I don't know, you almost can't help but empathize. I mean, this is still a human being. And it becomes clear, at least from his portrayal, that this character really got into this thing for all the wrong reasons. And didn't understand maybe even the half of it. And so when you see that he's put in these just harrowing situations with uh, combat and other soldiers, and it j I, I think there's just a human desire to see someone not get hurt and see someone not get killed. You know, the, the flip side of that is, of course, these are all Nazi soldiers, including Paul. And so all the Nazis have to die, right? And um, this one really, at least for me, it really pulled me in different directions on what do I want this character to go through? Like, what do they deserve? But also as a human being, what should they never be put through? What Never be subject to, you know? And, you know, we've seen this kind of story, I think, from let's say, the other side of the conflict, you know, I get, most famously, I guess, recently, 1917, where we saw it from the English point of view. And that is maybe a great companion to this film, at least in terms of depicting the unpredictable, almost, um, almost impossible nature of trench warfare. And here, at least, you know, the, the moments when we get into the combat and, and seeing the just terrible situation that it is, knowing that this character, or at least many of the characters in this film that we're introduced to and that we follow along with Paul, uh, we know that they're not going to make it out of this. And historically, we shouldn't want them to make it out of this. That's a real, like, uh, a dichotomous pool of 
who, who do I root for and why am I rooting for them? And maybe that's a little bit of uh, the motivation for even making this film. You know, it's made in German with German actors. This is the war. This is our country's side. So this is where we're fighting. But there is a, a kind of a, a subtext because this film was made today. I think it's not hard to interpret a lot of what this film is is showing us, both in terms of how war plays out, but also where allegiances lie and also where soldiers can get lost in the whole machinery of it for a cause that really isn't right. And even at the whim of one person. I mean, if you think about Russia invading Ukraine and the war there and how soldiers are basically running into death at the whim of a a, a dictator. And yet the whole world sees this isn't right, except for the people in Russia. Somehow they are blind to or oblivious to the truth and the situation that is actually happening in the world. And so to them, or at least to the soldiers that are fighting in that side of the fight, uh, I'm sure it feels like they're doing the right thing. They're doing what they're supposed to do, or they're doing what their country is asking them to do, whether they want to or not. And this, I think, gives us a little bit of a taste of that perspective of being on basically the wrong side of a war. I I just think this film does a pretty significant job of making us root for these people as human beings, but also when the time comes that we start to see them fall away and battles are starting to be lost and the whole effort becomes futile. We understand it. And it doesn't make it any any less tragic necessarily, but it makes it more palatable. Because we know that for all of the humanity that these characters are, are at least as they're portrayed, for all the humanity that they embody, they are still fighting for a cause, for a reason, for a person, for a movement that is immoral and purely evil, really. And by the end of the film, it becomes clear, you know, when it's kind of shown that there is an armistice and yet the general or the the commander of the forces that Paul is with, he orders one more strike. And it's really kind of a Hail Mary and it's clearly not going to work. Even the soldiers don't believe in it because they're tired. They're, they're just, uh, they're defeated. And it shows essentially the, the, the deadly cost of pride. This military force couldn't see its way to defeat, and it would rather go out in a blaze of glory. And unfortunately, it took so many lives with it. Here, I think it's, it's depicted in such a startling and, and in, in moments, actually very beautiful way. I mean, some of the cinematography, some of the the camera work, the editing, it's really magnificent to tell this kind of a story with so much that's going on, especially in some of the combat scenes. 
And yet uh, to be able to slow it down and find those quieter moments and let us just hang with the characters for a minute and see what it is that's going through their mind. I think this is a really strong film. You know, it's something that is, it's a foreign film. It's nominated for best picture this year. And uh, I don't know that this is necessarily one that I would favor over some others. But I think in terms of a war film, and especially in terms of, you know, a foreign film showing us the opposition's point of view, I think this one is really strong. Because I think you don't really get a lot of films like that. You know, the last one that, like, high profile that I can really think of is uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. You know, that was directed by Clint Eastwood, and uh, that one was certainly the same type of thing. It was shown from a a Japanese point of view uh, in the Pacific Theater in World War II. And, you know, and that film, if I remember right, it was nominated for a few things, maybe Best Picture or Best Director. But this one, uh, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, I think it's a pretty strong film. So that's a recommendation. You know, this is one that's kind of limited in terms of where you can find it. Uh, I think it's only available on Netflix. And it, it must have had a theatrical run at some point last year. But now, at least in the moment I'm recording this, February of 2023, it's available on Netflix. So check that out there. Okay, here we go. Film Streak 211, The Banshees of Inishirin. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. I just don't like you no more. Have you been rowing? Have you been rowing? Have I been rowing? Well, you are rowing. It does look like we're rowing. You can't just stop being friends with a fella. He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. Maybe this whole thing has just been about getting you to stand off for yourself. How are you, fatty? That's with your dog, is it? What did you come here for? I just came to kick your door in and give you a slagging. Why aren't you talking to Barry no more? That wouldn't be a sin now, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? What I've decided to do is this. I have a set of shears at home, and each time you bother me, I'll take one of my fingers off with them. Starting from now. But shush like, Barry. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. It's about one boring man leaving another man alone. One boring man, you're all fucking boring. Let's just call it quits. We won't call it quits. We'll call it the start. Okay, so here, look, this is uh, the latest film from writing director Martin McDonough. And stars Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson and stars Barry Kagan and Carrie Condon. And I got to say, like this film, just from the initial trailers, I wasn't really sure what this was about. And I wasn't really sure if I was going to follow you know, the, the, the tone of it. And I can tell you that uh, I was kind of right. You know, I'll get into the premise here in a minute, but I just, I I have to say, like, there, there's something about Mark McDonough and the films that he's made that 
you know, in Bruges was a more obviously comedic story and the performances with these two same actors really seem to come across and land, I guess, a little more on the nose, right? Uh, something like three billboards. Uh, I feel like, you know, it's a, it's an American story with American actors and yet it still kind of worked in the same way. Like you, you were pretty quickly in, in on the joke and you got what it was trying to do. And yet at the core of it, there's a real deep and dark drama. And uh, here it's almost like the inverse, the tone of it, feels like that you know even just the the cinematography the way the film is put together it seems like a much more dramatic and serious film with uh you know just it's just all laced up with little moments of humor and just visual gags um that are very subtle but they're there and you know i but there's a darkness to it. There's a real dryness to what this story is, or at least what I think is trying to say. And so, I mean, let me get into it then. So, you know, we have Colin Farrell, he plays Pedrick and he's a, he's, he's a man that lives on this Island in Ireland. And, it's a very small, uh, basically a, a village of, you know, it seems like 12 people. <laughs> it seems like hardly anybody is on this island. Everybody knows everybody, including his sister and his best friend, Calm, who is played by Brendan Gleeson, right? And one day he goes over to see his friend and he doesn't respond. He doesn't want to come out. And it's just, it's confusing. It's confounding. He doesn't understand why his friend isn't responding to him. And over the course of the film, we realize, oh, well, he just doesn't want to be friends with him anymore. It starts to puzzle him and it starts to confuse Padraig on like, wh why? What did he do? Did he say something? Did he do something? Is it something about him? Why does Calm not want to be his friend anymore? And so he's very insistent on it. He just cannot let this go. He can't just say, okay, well, I guess this is, this is not a person in my life. And there's something to that, right? If you think about like friendships and especially adult friendships, you know, once you're out of like younger ages and you get into like your adult life, you, uh, friendships can come and go. And sometimes it's without explanation. Sometimes it's for very good reason, but other times it's just, things just dissolve. People just drift apart, right? Now here, the story that we're at least presented is that Calm just cuts it off cold and doesn't really give any explanation and even goes so far to say, if you say another word to me, I'm going to start cutting off my own fingers. And it's revealed that Calm is actually a musician and he's trying to write and compose and, and create some lasting piece of music, some work that will live on beyond him. You know, the, the, the day that he's gone, the music will still be there and it will be something that can be remembered and maybe celebrated or known or talked about. 
And that's the argument he makes in in a couple of scenes where he says, you know, this were me and my friend Podrick, us just hanging around and knowing each other and just talking about things and chit-chatting and whatever about menial small things that won't matter in the long run. There's nothing about that that's going to be important to anybody else besides the two of us. So it's time for me to do something that will matter. Okay, I got it. I very much identify with that. You know, as someone who's in a creative field, I get it. You want to do something that's going to say more than you could ever say on your own. And so I get the purpose. I get the intent there. But the, uh, you know, and maybe where the comedy comes in is how he is so abruptly changing course and not letting people know and not even attempting to bring anybody with him. And, you know, everybody does things their own way. I can't, you know, fault a character in a fictional story for that, but it at least presents a little bit of a, of an odd dynamic to this whole thing, because it just feels like, why would this guy do this this way? And it is eventually revealed that maybe he's got some other things he's struggling with, or at least that's the way I read it, you know, that that maybe he is, I mean, it's, it's said quite literally, like he's feeling despair. And maybe life on an island with such a small community and knowing that in the distance, in the background, there's clearly a war going on. There's an Irish civil war happening in the background as the backdrop to all of this. And we hear parts of it. You know, we hear like, uh, uh, was like bombshells going off in the distance. We hear talk of it, right? Like the situation off the island. Here's what else is happening in the world. And yet our characters are never directly involved in it. But maybe that's a point of this film is that something like that, like a sense of there are bigger stakes and there are bigger things that are happening in the world can still affect anybody, even down to the smallest you know, town or village and even down to a friendship. And it's not say that this is, that's what causes these two people to not be friends is something, some feelings about a war. It's not even that. But it clearly forces people to, to maybe rethink what they're doing with themselves and, and reassess where they are in their lives. And I mean, you could even say, look, there may be some parallels to today, to contemporary life where, you know, when COVID hit in 2020, it forced or it at least suggested to a lot of people, maybe you need to rethink some things. Maybe you need to rethink how you're living your life. Maybe you need to rethink how much time you spend at work because we were all of a sudden at home all day, every day, locked down. Maybe it forced you to rethink uh, how you interact with your family or with even just your home itself, you know? Um, and so that's a big world problem that affected most, if not everybody in the world down to very specific things in their life. Maybe it even forced you honestly to think about your relationships and your friendships and what those mean to you. I know it did for me. 
you know, I tried to do my best to check in with people and, and really consider and respect other people's time and especially space. Right. And, and yet I, I don't know that I saw anybody do something like this, where you just totally cut people out of your life, just cold. And so, I, you know, I think this is at least an interesting commentary, you know, on, on what relationships are and what they mean and how people can get just crossways with it all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, seemingly. And the, where the plot develops and where it goes and where these characters find themselves at the end, um, I feel like it's a little meandering. And I don't really think we get a real resolution. And so um, that's where the film kind of loses me. You know, I really thought the film was going to go a certain way and it doesn't, it goes a different way. And then it doesn't really, by the end of it, um, I'm not really sure where we ended up actually. And so I just feel like tonally, it's just, it didn't really work for me. I, there's a lot to like in it, I think. And it's certainly crafted immaculately. It, it, it feels authentic. It feels true down to the language, down to the settings, down to everything. But there's something about the tone that I just, I don't know. Maybe I just don't, you know, I, I even feel like maybe this way of life, this time period, even in, in Ireland, I can't relate to. Like, I, I've never seen this before. And maybe that's part of the idea, is to show us a way of life during a time that we've never seen on film. But it's so different. I'll put it this way. It's more different than I expected it would be. And it took me a little too much, I don't know, to kind of wrap my head around whose side am I on here? And... Am I even on anyone's side? I, I think as a viewer, I at least want to have somebody I can really latch on to. You know, for the most of the film, it seems like you're supposed to be on Padraig's side and try to understand why he's feeling uh, confused over his friend not wanting to be his friend. But as the film goes on, you start to see, well, maybe this guy's just needy and maybe he's just annoying. And maybe he's honestly, maybe he's just not that smart. And yet at the same time, you see Calm and the way he's handling it. And he's, uh, it's almost, it's disrespectful and it's, it's almost uh, cruel. And so, and also it's entirely self-destructive. So I, neither one of these people am I on their side. I mean, the, the person that I probably most relate to is the sister played by Carrie Condon, who at least sees or tries to tries to speak reason to everything and eventually leaves the island. She's like, I can't, I don't, you are all crazy. You're all, it's in the trailer, right? You're all boring here. So I got to go. And it's weird when the character you most relate to is the one that leaves the story at some point. So, um, you know, I can't really say I recommend this too much. I mean, if you're interested, I mean, it is nominated for best picture and best screenplay and, and some other nominations. And so I feel like it's at least worth seeing just to kind of get an idea of what the, 
what the the buzz is about, but I don't see this being best picture. I just I just really don't. You know, this could be one of those. This lands best picture, and about five to ten years, we're going to think what what the hell were people thinking? This just isn't it. I think. So, that's the Banshees of Inisherin. Um, I saw that on. I think that's on HBO Max. Yeah, HBO Max. So you can catch it there uh, if you're into just catching it streaming somewhere. Um, otherwise, I think it's more widely available. You can rent it or, or even buy it if you like. Um, so check that one out. All right, so here we go. Let's get to another one here. This one is Film Streak 212, Bardot, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Silverio. Silverio. Ya levántate, Silverio. Silverio Gama, periodista, documentalista This is my home. No, this is not your home, sir. You cannot call this place your home. Pensamos que somos de varios lados, pero en realidad. No somos de ninguna parte. All right, so here's uh, the newest film, the latest film from director Alejandro Inaritu, and this is particularly nominated for Best Cinematography from Darius Kanji. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with his work, um, I remember, I think the first film I saw that he shot uh, was Seven, you know, was that back in 95? And that was such a distinct style. And I think... For most people, you probably identify that as David Fincher style, but the camera work, the lighting, that's Darius Kanji. And so it's very distinct. He's got a very unique sense of, of I don't know, using shadow and light. And you mix that with someone like Inaritu and his sense, especially in more recent films, you know, the, the last couple of films he's made, like the high-profile films, were The Revenant and Birdman. And so much of those films are made up, and Birdman entirely, of these long, uncut takes with these super wide-angle lenses that follow characters through, just just follow them through 
every situation that they they run into. The camera just never cuts away. It never looks away. And that is something that's very much in this film. And even to a point where it becomes a little bit, you know, it, it almost becomes disorienting. But when you start to see it come together, it all starts to make sense. I mean, it's mystifying, it's disorienting, it's just, uh, it's surreal in so many moments. And it's one of those where you're not really sure what you're watching. And I mean, even, look, the very first shot of this film, it's one, it's kind of mesmerizing on a couple of different levels. And I could try to describe it. You really have to see it. Um. There's there's no dialogue in it. We're following the point of view of a man, clearly, walking maybe in the desert somewhere. And we see his shadow on the ground in front of us. It's almost like a little bit like video game-ish, right? Like if you play like a first-person game and you're just kind of walking through the desert. It looks like that. And then the person starts running and they jump and they leap like into the air, like dozens of feet into the air. They land, they run again, they leap again, even further, even higher, and they land again, and they do it one more time and leap again, and they never come back down, and they're off into the sky. And that's the first shot, and it's maybe, I don't know, a few minutes long. It feels like it, at least. And it's mesmerizing on that level of like, wait, what am I watching? What, what is this? Like, this is the beginning of the film? But then also, uh, just from a technical point of view, you're like, wait, how how did they do this? Because there's clearly no camera in the shot, and we're seeing shadows in front of us, so the camera should be in the shadows, and yet this goes off the ground dozens of feet into the air, hundreds of feet into the air. How? Right there, just from the very beginning, that opening shot, there's so much that's in that shot that makes sense later. But in that moment, I I saw that and I said, okay, I guess this is just what I'm just, we're just going to see what happens. <laughs> it's just that kind of reaction. And every scene that comes after that, up until a point, it's the same. It's like, I don't know what I'm watching here. None of this seems to be connected, really. I'm seeing the same person. You know, our main character in the film is, uh, his name is Cervario. He's played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho. And, uh, I, you know, I've never seen him in films before, but I, I, I feel like I must have. I feel like I must have seen him in something. He has a very distinct face and, and features. And here, his character is a, we're kind of explained, it's revealed over the course of the film. He's a documentary filmmaker who was, you know, uh, left Mexico to do this work and, and explore his journalistic endeavors and, you know, landed, uh, uh, landed a lot of acclaim abroad. And now in this film, he's returning home to Mexico. And part of it is him coming back, being celebrated, being acknowledged for his achievements or his, his latest documentary in particular. But also we're seeing his family has come with him and he's seeing old friends. He's kind of going through old places that he's been 
that's where I feel like that's the handful of truths. We're seeing the episodic kind of moments that someone goes through when they, one, when they return home, right? You, you kind of uh, reconnect with things that you maybe left behind or maybe things you forgot about. And so there's a lot of that that's happening. But also, you know, here's a, a man who's, uh, the character is born in Mexico, but moves abroad to, I don't remember specifically where, but uh, his kids, they're grown. His daughter lives in Boston. And he talks about, uh, I think, Los Angeles at some point. So I am assuming maybe he moved to Los Angeles. But the idea is that he's coming back to Mexico and his kids are more Americanized than he is to the point where they speak English pretty much through most of this, their scenes in the film. You know, for me in particular, that feels true. You know, I, I feel like I've had those moments and it's not often. It's either you, you kind of pick a language and stick with it, uh, or at least for a conversation. But I've had those moments where you kind of go back and forth, especially between generations. And so seeing that on film depicted in a way that one is, is dramatic in some moments and others it's played a little bit for a gag. Um, that was, that was interesting to see. And the other thing is we're seeing these characters a little disturbed by their sense of identity. And maybe that's a, a very uniquely Latin experience, you know, when you're, from one country, but you live in a different country, and the languages are different, the cultures are different, and even some of the uh, some of the mentalities, some of the ways of thinking are different. And it's up to you to navigate that and to really find your comfort zone in that, to find that line and and straddle it right, to be in both sides at the same time. I feel like that's a, a common thread uh, to one degree or another for a lot of Latin people. And sometimes it's not easy to figure out exactly where you're comfortable or where the world is comfortable with you. But that is a, a, a almost constant factor in life. I know I felt it, especially when it comes to language. You know, I, here later in life, I've tried to find my way through that a little more comfortably, but it's always been an issue. You know, it's like, it's like the, the scene in uh, the movie Selena from way back now, right? You know, where Abraham, he's talking about, uh, you know, to the Mexicans, you're not Mexican enough. And to the Americans, you're not American enough. And you have to find a way to be both and make both sides happy. You have to walk in two different worlds. And there's a little bit of that in this. And I, at least, I relate to that or I I see that. And there's a moment where this character, Silvetto, he's a filmmaker and he's returning home and an old friend of his, a TV show host, he kind of starts to take him down a few notches, you know? It's like, oh, you, you, you're kind of too good for us now and you forgot about us and you know, your films aren't that good. And it becomes a thing where he's critiquing the film. He's critiquing him as a filmmaker. He's critiquing him as a person. And, 
you know, you've, you have to look at it, you have to step back and say, well, this is maybe Inaritu himself saying, this is how I can feel about myself and my work sometimes. Especially him who has received so much acclaim and is deserved, but to have your doubts, have your self-criticism, be your, you know, your worst critic, that happens. And so to see that on film, like the characters, like two sides of his brain arguing it out on screen, that's uh, that's an interesting dynamic to watch play out because it does turn around. And so Verio does take it back to him. He brings the fight back to his friend and say, well, you know, you're never going to be anything. You're just going to be some you know shitty TV host. I'm at least trying to do something bigger and me- more meaningful. And so yeah, they're both sides to the argument and it's represented. And, you know, from there, the film goes to even stranger places. And I just think um, for all of the meaningful moments, there's also just enough surreal, like oddity to it all. Some of it feels like a dream or like hallucinations. And through, I mean, look, this film is like, I don't know, like two and a half hours. And for most of those first two hours, I wasn't really sure where this was all going. It just seemed like kind of a mishmash of ideas and episodes and just really random imagery and scenes. And it's all beautifully put together, of course. But it never really seemed to cohere. It never really connected and, and formed into one solid narrative. You know, I could follow a scene and think, oh, that was great. But then some weird things happen. And I'm not sure where we are now. And then another great scene. And so that's where I felt like up until, like I said, about the last 20 or 30 minutes of this film, I was really down on this. I just really, I didn't get what we were trying to do here. I didn't get anything that was happening, again, in a broader sense. But when the end comes, and I I don't really want to spoil it, but I'll tell you, it will make it worth watching everything that came before it. It is incredibly uh, touching and soulful. And definitely meaningful. And uh, it's something that the more I think about it, um, the more it affects me. And so, you know, I, I it, it, it's even a thing where I almost feel like I don't know why I doubted this. I don't know why I would have doubted this film wouldn't have come through in the end. It's a story about reflection. It's a story about it's it, it it is about dreams, but it's also about loss and even struggling with identity. And so many things that go through one's mind when uh when you're maybe at a crossroads. I'll put it that way. So this is a, a, an absolute recommendation. Um again. To watch it, it it will be a little bit of uh, a confusing and unclear destination that you're heading towards. But when you get there, it will all make sense. And 
I, I ultimately, I just feel like that's where this is such a unique experience. I don't know that if I would have known what was going to happen at the end of this film and how powerful it would be for me, at least I would have seen this film in a different light. So go into it blind. Don't look into too much about what it's about. Just go into it and go for the ride. It will be strange. It will be in moments disturbing In other moments. It'll be hilarious, but it will mean something in the end. I promise you that. All right. So that's Bardot. That's, uh, that's a great film. That's a recommendation for me. Um, I think that is currently only available on Netflix also. So check that one out. In terms of, look, we're talking about Oscar nominations. You know, we're talking about best cinematography. I still got a couple more to go to that I want to see that are also in that category. Um, but I've seen All Quiet in the Western Front. Obviously, we just talked about that. Uh, I did see Elvis in a previous episode. I talked about that. Um, cinematography, I'm sure, is is a big part of that film. I don't know that it's the best. This one has a lot of strong showcase moments in it. And the fact the camera work is so, so bold. Um, I'm sure that speaks a lot towards cinematography and how that all works as a part of filmmaking. Um, but there's still a couple others that I want to watch that are in that category. I want to get to Empire of Light and I want to get to Tar, obviously. So that'll be coming soon. So look, in the meantime, those are just a few of the films that are nominated in different categories. Let me know what you think. Um, I'm I'm not really, I don't put a lot of stock in awards so much, but I do like that it, they at least give us uh, a little bit of a guide to what was some of the best work of the year. And Oscars aren't the end all be all, but they are kind of the most known, the, the highest profile awards, right? So at least start there, make that your starting point and then start to feel out the others and things that have been talked about, things that people have recommended. You know, I, I've tried to do that over the years. And so here's what I'm doing. That's, I'm just telling you what I've seen. Some of these films, a lot of the films actually that are nominated for Oscars this year, I already saw. And so you can go back and check out previous episodes where I talked about those. Uh, I know everything, everywhere, all at once, Elvis, uh, Top Gun Maverick. Um, let's see what else would have been nominated. Um, Avatar. I talked about that. Uh, some of them I still got to get to. I still got to get to a few of them. But uh, otherwise, hey, that was another episode of Film Streak. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, check out some other episodes. And go to filmstreak.com. You can do all the things there. And tell you what, I'm going to go watch some more new movies. Mm-hmm.